it seems as though we have heaven seems to be all the rage today doesn't it we have a number of books that are out 90 minutes in heaven and heaven is for real movies are being uh, played about that shown about people who go to heaven and come back and all sorts of things like that there's nothing new about this we've been seeing this since the 70s we've um, a number of different books and periodicals and movies and videos have been um, said about those who, who go into heaven and, and come back my, my goal today is not to so much comment on that I would simply encourage you that whatever these books or movies may tell you about heaven I would simply ask and exhort you to make sure that they align themselves with what the Bible says about heaven it is always interesting to me that number one the Bible never records anybody except Jesus Christ going to heaven and coming back and recording what they saw Paul said I was taken into the highest heavens and I can't even tell you what I saw there it is forbidden Lazarus was dead for four days he didn't come back and write a book about what I saw <laughs> on the other hand our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came down from heaven and told us that the Lord is heaven in the Bible we see a number of people who have visions of heaven Micah had a vision of heaven a variety of people have had visions of heaven I find it very interesting that those who have visions of heaven respond with phrases like this woe is me I'm a dead man I fell on my face as though dead. So those who have glimpsed the very glories of glory do not seem to uh, have this light-hearted, wonderful thing. They're like, oh my goodness, I'm a dead man. And so today is not so much a comment on what a neurosurgeon experienced or what a four-year-old boy experienced or what the Apostle John experienced when he was granted permission to come up here. And he entered into the very throne room of the Most High God. And his experience we are going to find is very similar to other people who had the same experience Ezekiel and Daniel even Moses and Isaiah who, who entered into this presence and they all describe the exact same thing so before we consider our text today let me just place it in its context I think that we do well to ascribe great importance to these two chapters. Because in the context, John has just written, at the command of Christ, he has just written seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And he has encouraged these 
churches. He has encouraged the individuals in these churches by granting them great promise to those who would overcome. And the reason great promises were granted to those who were overcome is because these churches were faced with extremely challenging situations. Many of them were facing very severe punish or persecution. A number of them were dealing with false teaching that arose from within the church. So there was trials within and difficulties without. They were trying to live their lives in a Christian life in the midst of a very pagan culture. And so Jesus has John to write these letters saying, listen you guys, these are the issues. You're doing some things well, but you've got some problems. You need to get some things right. to grant to them, if you will overcome, if you will persevere, here are the great things I am going to promise to you. So as these churches face persecution and struggle how to remain faithful in this pagan culture, Jesus writes these letters. So that's in chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 6 through 20 of the book of Revelation, we see... Some very, very difficult images. We see chaos on the earth. We see great upheaval. We see calamity. We see things like a third of the earth and a third of the a third of the earth being destroyed. We see things um, of calamity. We see God's judgment. We see images of believers being persecuted. We see images of people rebelling against God and God judging. It is a very dark section of Scripture. And so in between chapters 2 and 3, this encouragement to overcome the godly in a pagan culture, and in between that and this very dark picture of the judgment of God upon the earth, we have chapters 4 and 5. And they are not placed here by mistake, not only because I believe in the, that John was divinely inspired by God to place them here, but because I think it makes a lot of sense. In between chapters 2 and 3, and in between the, the very challenging passages of chapters 16 and 20, we see a beautiful scene of worship. We will see the magnificent King of heaven and earth. We will see the Lamb of God who purchased redemption. It is very easy to be fearful of where our world is going and what's going to happen. It is very easy to get caught up and say, you know, how do we live a life of right living before God in a culture that seems to um, push us away from that. And in between all of that is a glorious vision of the very throne room of God, of the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. You've got to you need to keep in mind that the book of Revelation is a God-centered book. It is very easy for us, and perhaps we'll, I'll make this error, as we go along, get really wrapped up in the symbols and uh, the metaphors and uh, 
what does this mean and what does that mean? And, you know, today we're going to see a number of very, very strange images. We're going to see creatures with faces like lions and lambs, and we're going to see all sorts of incredible things. And of course we always want to ask, what does this mean? Who are these people? What's going on? One of the questions we ask when we read the book of Revelation is, where is America? book of Revelation is primarily a theocentric book. That is, it is a God-centered book. It is not so much, not that it's not at all, but not so much a book of what happens here on earth, or what's happening in heaven. What is God's? Remember we at the very beginning we said the book of Revelation is really to give us a right view of things. The book of Revelation gives us a right view of things. And the Chapters 4 and 5 give us a right view. Vern Poitras, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation, describes it like this. And he says, if you were to go to an airport and, and you look out the window and you see planes coming and planes going and carts with baggage and luggage and all sorts of things going on, you might wonder whether or not there's any rhyme or reason. It looks like it might just be chaos. But if you were invited into the control tower, and you had a view from there, and you heard the commands that were coming, you would see that it is not chaos at all, but it is a beautifully organized and a wonderfully orchestrated management of all of these things that are all happening at the same time. And chapters 4 and 5 take us into the control tower. That the chaos and the plagues and the judgment and the... And the uh, seemingly haphazardness of chapter 6 through 20 are not haphazard and they are not chaotic at all that they are perfectly orchestrated by the one who sits on the throne and the lamb who is slain we need to keep that in mind as we go through the book of Revelation and so chapters 4 and 5 are uniquely positioned in a way to remind us don't get lost in all of the stuff that's going on Remember that there is a God who sits on his throne and he rules from heaven and he will not be defeated and his plans will come to pass. And there is a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world who will redeem his people. We need to have Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Because in the midst of trial and temptation which we all face, we need to see God's glory. So let me just give you some direction of where I'm going to go today, and then we'll actually get into the text itself. Today I'm going to take a very broad view of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. In other words, we're just going to kind of fly over it and uh, see the lay of the land, see the contours of the land. I'm not going to go into great detail on chapters 4 and 5. Now in the upcoming weeks we will. Next week we'll delve back into chapter 4 and we'll look at things a little more closely and perhaps we'll answer questions like, who are these things? What are these creatures? What are they doing? What is the symbolism behind all of this? What does all of this mean? And then the following week we'll look at chapter 5 by itself. But today we just want to get, get a general overview 
of what's going on, so just a broad view of things. We need to keep in mind, and I'll be reminding you as we go through the, uh, the book of Revelation, that it is apocalyptic literature, And that's actually a genre of writing. So, you know, when you read the Bible, there are all sorts of different styles of writing, right? You probably notice that there's poetry in the Bible, right? Of course, Psalms and Proverbs and, of course, the Prophets. There's a lot of poetry. That would be a genre of writing. And there is um, historical narrative of 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's just telling you what happened. It's a historical narrative. There is gospel, which is kind of unique to... Um, the Bible, but that is a, a very specific type of biography. There's gospel. There is epistles. These are letters, right? So there's all these different genres of writing, and then there's also a genre of writing called apocalyptic. And we see it in Daniel, and we see it in Zechariah, and we see it perhaps in Matthew 24 and in Mark, and we see it uh, in a variety of places throughout the Bible. But the most well-known uh, book that utilizes this style of writing, of course, is the book of Revelation. And it uses symbolic language to describe spiritual and actual realities. What I want us to see is that what John is going to do today is he's going to use a number of symbols and imagery from the Old Testament. I've said this also, and I'll keep reminding you, that the book of Revelation is the most Old Testament New Testament book there is. All right? Pretty much, um, one scholar that I, that I respect very well said, every verse in the book of Revelation has an Old Testament is somewhat reflected in the Old Testament. In other words, if we're going to know the book of Revelation, we're going to have to know the Old Testament, because John draws from the Old Testament constantly. You'll see that a lot today. In fact, the first part of our discussion will be dealing with John's understanding of the Old Testament. So I want to look and remind you of how John uses the Old Testament. I'm not sure if he so much uses the Old Testament here as that he sees these things and he's reminded of other people who've gone before him and written of these same realities. There's one difference that we're going to see is that John sees something that none of the Old Testament prophets saw. Something that they could only think of in abstract forms as a shadow. But what they saw as a shadow, John will see in reality. I think one of the guiding passages of Scripture for this is found in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here we are going to be seeing God's will done in heaven. So, what I'd like to do, first we're going to read the text, we're going to read both, chap- chap- both chapters, 4 and 5, and then we'll come back and, and I want to look at how John understands what he's seeing through the lens of those who have gone before him. 
specifically Isaiah, specifically Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, and then we're going to come back and do a broad overview of this beautiful scene that John um, is invited and privileged to gaze upon. So let's go ahead and I'm going to read chapters 4 and 5. They're both relatively short chapters. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf. And the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and break its seals and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it and one of the elders said to me stop weeping behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne.
throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So we begin this passage with John with this scene in heaven. And it is now something of a shift. We know that this is a shift in John's... A a whole new section has started, and we know a whole new section has started, because John introduces this by saying, I was in the Spirit. And we know, because we can remember all the way back to our introduction, that four times John uses this phrase, I was in the Spirit. And it always introduces a new section. Something new is about to happen. So I was in the Spirit. So this is a new section for John, and he is... Um, granted the privilege to actually enter into the very throne room of God. Not many people can make that claim to have seen such a thing. And so it begins with this idea, and I saw, behold, I looked, and a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice I heard was like the sound of a trumpet. This door standing open, certainly, and uh, John being told to come up here, um, is very reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, it might even be wise if you were to uh, bookmark or somehow put a place in Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, and Daniel 7. Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, and Daniel 7. I'll be going back and forth between those because John is seeing the same thing that these guys saw. Ezekiel 1.1, 1, 1, Now it came about in the 30th year, on the 5th day of the 4th month, while I was right by the river Kebar among the exiles. The heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. And we will see as we go through the book of Ezekiel that what he saw was he saw the one seated upon a throne. And so Ezekiel sees the similar thing. John is seeing a similar thing. And they, they both see one seated upon the throne, just like Isaiah. He says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated upon a throne. It seems that when people are given a glimpse of the glories of heaven, the very first thing they see is a throne with a king seated upon it. It's interesting to me because there's all sorts of crazy things going on in chapters 4 and 5, is there not? I mean, John sees 24 elders and sees creatures with weird faces. And he sees a lion that looks like a lamb. But the thing that gets John's attention before anything is the Lord of glory seated upon a throne, ruling and reigning and in charge. And so before we delve in, in the next few weeks, before we delve in to looking at creatures and images and all of these things, we, like John, need to set our minds upon the one who is seated upon the throne. Because he's the one who John is looking at. We need to be people as we live in this world and we face the, the, the creeping paganism of our culture and we are concerned with what's going to happen to us in, in the future. 
we need to fix our mind on things above and the one who is seated upon the throne. And, and John goes on and he says, I see this rainbow sea, this sea that looks like a rainbow in front of the throne. And it reminds us of Ezekiel chapter 1, 28. And we'll talk next week a little bit about what that, what that rainbow means. Perhaps it has to do with God's promise. God is always remembering his covenant that he made with man. I will never destroy you with flood again. And John sees these heavenly courtiers, their uh, angelic beings in verse 4. And this reminds us in Daniel chapter 7, 9 and 10, where, where, and also in, Dan, or in Revelation 5 and 10, where I saw myriads and myriads of angels, thousands upon thousands, there is, seems to be one seated on the throne, and then there seem to be these heavenly beings close to the throne and in concentric circles going further and further out until the furthest out we're going to see the thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads of angels surrounding. It just seems like a concentric circles is going out. We're going to see the praise goes out through all of them. We see flashes of lightning and thunder coming from the throne. And of course this echoes um, Ezekiel chapter 122. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 1.4. It also reminds us, remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai and the people were looking up and there were flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and the people would not approach the mountain for fear of what was going on up there. Here we see power and majesty and authority going forth. We see living creatures and of course this echoes um, Ezekiel 1.22 and Isaiah chapter 6.2 Isaiah says I saw these heavenly beings and, and they flew with, with two wings they shielded their eyes, with two wings they covered their feet and with two wings they flew it's amazing these heavenly beings they cover their eyes, they won't even look upon the very glories of God When Isaiah saw this, it says, smoke filled the temple. Why? It was to shield Isaiah from looking upon the glory of God and his fullness would die. Angels won't even look upon the glory of the Lord. They shield their eyes from him. And they sing, holy, holy, holy. That's what the angels, these angelic beings sing. And then in chapter 5, John sees something completely different, something the Old Testament says, something Ezekiel only could think about to lose, and something that Isaiah never saw, but he could only speak of in, his, in the 53rd chapter of, of his prophecy. And it's something that Daniel could only look on from afar. And John sees in reality, he says, Behold, I look at a lamb who is slain from before the foundation of the world. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle, and I know I, Jaime has been teaching on that on Sunday morning, the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament tab, temple were shadows. They were copies of a reality in heaven. If you've read the book of Hebrews, and I know you have, it talks about how the, the, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, is just a shadow of a reality that exists in heaven. John is in the reality. He has probably worshipped at the temple, at Herod's temple. 
He's gone in and probably worshipped there. But that was just a copy. John has now been told, come up here. And I'm going to let you see the true tabernacle. The true place. I see the original things. And John sees God. And John sees the Lamb as the center of all things. And that all things exist by His will. So why does John, why is John given such a vision? And why is he told to make sure that the churches have an understanding of this vision? It is not simply so that we can try to figure out what all these things are. And we can try to put the puzzle pieces together. But it's important that we have a high and exalted view of God. As we wrestle be freed from the idolatries of our world and the false world view that so easily shape us and the sin that so easily entangles us. How do we break free from those things? I think by getting a clear vision of who God is and what He is will help us to break free of those things. Well, one of the primary aspects of Revelation chapters 4 and 5, certainly the key theme in these is worship. I don't know how you can read these chapters and not come away with saying, this is all about worship. Chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within and day and night. They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. God is holy. Not only is he morally pure, but he is completely other. He is separate. He is not like anything else that you can imagine. Holy, holy, holy. Let me remind you, if you were not here, not a while back when I explained this linguistic aspect. In Hebrew, there are a few ways to form a superlative. And you know what I mean by a superlative. That just you're saying, somebody may say, well, or you might say, that church down the road is a great church, but our church is the greatest. That pastor down the road is really good, but our pastor is the best. So when you say greatest and best, you are forming a superlative. And there are a couple of ways to form a superlative in Hebrew. Here's one way. You double the noun or you double the adjective. So if you wanted to talk about pure gold, the purest of gold, you would just say there was gold gold. And that would be a way of saying that there is pure, the purest gold that you could ever find is in that area. Because it is gold gold. Or if you wanted to say there are a lot of pits, these are actually a lot of like, pits that you could fall into. These are actually biblical examples of where the Hebrew superlative or the doubling takes place. You would say there are pit pits. Lots of pits. The most pits that you could fall into. 
When Isaiah is describing the otherness of God, the holiness, the separateness, the purity, the beauty, and the glory of God, he does not say that God, that when the angels are describing and singing praise to God, they are not singing holy or evil. No. And they don't even double. Holy. Holy. The Lord who sits upon the throne is holy. 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 There is none like you. You are so far removed from us. You are God and we are not. God is other. And you are the one who was and who is and who is to come. God, you are eternal. That is, you will never die and you will never be defeated. Men may declare that God is dead, but I'm here to tell you that God is alive. Nietzsche said God is dead. The truth of the matter is Nietzsche is dead and God is still alive. And today, Nietzsche recognizes his error. Oops. And God will never die and he will never be defeated. And as men declare God is dead and as people come along and say that we no longer need God and so we can remove him from our consciousness and from our thinking that science now has rendered the need for God to be useless we can now explain things. God was a great way to help explain the world and explain um, events that could not be explained. But now we have science and we know about why volcanoes erupt and we know why there are eclipses and we know why all of these things happen. And so we no longer need God. And that may be the prevailing view of our day. But the Bible is very clear. God is not dead. God is absolutely alive, eternal. And when the science and the physicists have breathed their last breath, God will still be on the throne, ruling and reigning as the holy, holy, holy one. We are to have a true view, and Revelation brings us a true view of the way things really are. He is the creator of all in verse 10. And the twenty-four elders fall down before him and he sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. This God who sits on the throne is the creator of all. All things are created by Him and for Him. We do not understand all of His ways, but He is the creator, the sustainer, and the worker of all things. And so, as we look at the worship in chapter 4, we see that God is worshipped because He is holy and because He is the creator of all. We see who He is and we see what He does. But then in chapter 5, John gets a whole new view of things. Something that the Old Testament saints never even only long to see. And they see a lamb. First of all, 
John is told by an angelic guide to stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of root of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book. And John turns to see the lion, and he sees the lamb standing as it's slain. And in verse 9, we see all of the angelic beings. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures that were before the throne and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. It's interesting as I was studying this, this idea of a new song. Generally, most often, a new song was sung when a victory had been achieved. It is an expression of praise to God for victory over enemies. And here is the Lamb standing as if slain, and these four living creatures and the 24 elders, they begin to sing a new song because a victory has been won and an enemy has been vanquished. And they praise God. They praise the Lamb for His work of redemption and His authority to carry out God's redemptive plan. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. You are slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Praise God for His redemption. They praise God for His ability to carry out the plan. And his worthiness in 9 and 10, his worthiness to open the scroll is because he has redeemed mankind and made them a kingdom of priests who reign with God. You are worthy. Why? Because you've purchased people and you've made them to be priests. Folks, God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, has made you the mediator between men and God. That's what a priest does. We mediate, we stand between men and God. And we bridge that breach. So as we go, we are told the fields are wide the harvest, the laborers are few, and we are few, but we are the fields and the plain gospel. We are, we are working as priests, mediating between men and God. And some people want to know about the hope that you have within you, and you begin to talk about that, and you begin to share the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are functioning as a priest, bringing peace between men and God. And this was because Jesus purchased you with his own blood. Worthy to receive praise and honor and glory. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor. This is going on myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels. All praising the Lamb. Jesus is trustworthy of all allegiance. Everything you hold in your hand is is worth offering to Christ for his sake. There is nothing that you possess that has not been given you by Christ, and that there is nothing that you possess that is more power, more valuable than Christ himself.
Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and every created thing which is in heaven on earth and under the earth and the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice the expanding praise that we see here in verses 10 through 13. Well, actually, in the whole thing, what do we see? We'll see this more vividly as we go through. Well, we see the throne, and there's one seated upon the throne, and then there's a lamb seated on the throne. And then around that throne, there are these living creatures and 24 elders. And then, a little further out, we have myriad and myriad, thousands upon thousands of angels. And then, notice, further out, verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things were praising the Lord. Do you see? Praise is centered upon the throne and it goes out into all creation so that all creation, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, in the seas or on the land, regardless, all things bow before the Lord and say, worthy are you, O God, and the Lamb who was slain. Praise extends outward. It begins with this inner circle represented by the living creatures and the elders. Then extends to the host of angels, the myriad upon myriad of angels. And then it crescendos in the entire universe giving praise to God. That is what we will cling to as we begin to approach chapter 6 through 20, as we begin to wonder about where do I fit in all of this? Is Should I be worried about my future? Should I be concerned with what's going to happen? When you ask that question, you need to read Revelation 4 and 5 and see God high and lifted up in the throne and the Lamb who is seated upon the throne. So I will conclude with this. Has your soul grown weary from bearing the weight and the onslaught of pagan culture? Do you go to work and you're just bombarded with filth and violence that just flows so naturally from the attitude and looks at people? When you sit in the store or you're shopping in the store and you hear conversations of debauchery, are you plagued? and grieved when you see our society speeding towards an eternity separated from God are you concerned or are you frightened with what the future holds I have to tell you sometimes I get concerned I see Christianity becoming less and less tolerable to a world, to a culture. And I wonder, how will I be affected by that? Will I be rejected? Set aside, marginalized, lied about? I wonder. 
I wonder what's going to happen in the future. Do you grieve that you may never conquer the sin that so easily consumes you? Oh Lord, how can I have victory? There are many answers to address those questions. But I think all of them begin with seeing God on his throne, high and lifted up. These chapters were not given to us just so that we can satisfy curiosities about heaven. They are given to us so that we would see the glories of heaven. And we'd see the glories and the majesty and the eternal nature of the God whom we serve. That we would be invited into the control tower and see that God has everything operating exactly as he wants it to operate. And there is a lamb who was slain and has purchased you as his own possession. And he will redeem you one day and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We need to keep that in mind. That God is worthy. That God is in control. That whatever you suffer, whatever you fear, whatever consumes you, God and the Lamb are of greater worth than all of that. And that He is in control. He is redeeming. He is powerful. And He is gracious. So let us worship our God and worship the Lamb who sits upon the throne. Our Father, we give you praise and glory and honor this morning for the great love that you have bestowed upon